When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You'll never work again in England. You'll never work again in the States and I'll stop you at every... And it was like, you're never going to work again. And we finished mixing it and uh, we took it back down to uh, Bearsville Records and played it for the head honcho there, Paul Fishkin. And Paul said, you can't put a seven-minute song out. And we said, yes, we can. We can do whatever we want. Hello and welcome, after a longer than expected break, to episode 38 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. I thank you as always for hitting play. So yes, I am back eventually. I had planned to take a month or so off to recharge the batteries over summer, spend some time with wife and kids, see some family that I hadn't seen for 18 months, and then I was going to hit the ground running again. But work and various other things got in the way, so I ended up taking a longer break than planned. But I'm back now with some great vintage and classic rock guests lined up to bring for you. Now, if this is the first time you've listened to Vintage Rock Pod, then please do go and check out some of the other big interviews from throughout the series. I speak with rock stars of all varieties, really. Mods, punks, prog rockers, hair metal, radio rock. Basically, all types of rock stars that made it big in the 60s, 70s and 80s. I've spoken with seven Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, countless Grammy Award winners and multi-platinum selling artists galore. There's a good mix of lead singers and guitarists, bass players, drummers, keyboard players and there's even a flutist yodeler too. Now if you remember the 70s prog band Focus, you'll know exactly who I mean by that. So just take a scroll back through the list of episodes. There's bound to be a few names on there that you like, I promise. Now, on to this week's show then. I've got an old school rocker, uh, schooled in the early days of the blues. He used to go and watch the Yardbirds and the Stones in his hometown of London. He's been around for more than 50 years in the business, forming his now legendary band in 1971 and achieving big success, including eight gold records, a platinum record and a double platinum record in the US alone, with 10 hit singles in the Billboard Hot 100. He's one heck of a character as well, so he was an awful lot of fun to talk with. Now, we chat about the unscrupulous manager that tried to get his band blocked from performing, the group's breakthrough and move to the US where they found success, the big hit single, of course, what it's like being back on the road now, his time trying out with Jimi Hendrix. Oh, yeah. Uh, There's a new album from the band and also about their very own wine, too. Oh, and if you hear a little knocking or banging during the interview, it's because he lives on a houseboat. So there you go. Please enjoy this lovely chat with Foghat founder and ever-present member, Roger Earl. I'm delighted to welcome to Vintage Rock Pod a man who's been in the business for over 50 years. Yes, it is. Roger Earl from Foghat. Hi, Roger. 
Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well indeed. We are two British English speaking men, but uh, you're not in Britain at all, are you? No, I, I moved to the States in 1973. I first came here in 68. Uh, I was in a band called Savoy Brown Blues Band. And uh, it felt like felt like coming home to me. Well, you, you're familiar with the term taking coals to Newcastle. Yeah. That's what it was like when we first came to the States. I mean, bringing a blues band to the home of the blues was kind of strange. <laughs> but uh, they seemed to welcome us with open arms. Um, you know, it was, it was interesting because nobody, or most of the people over here in the States, certainly around our age, what was it, like 20, 23, 22, somewhere around that, weren't familiar with, you know, people like Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, uh, they had no real clue as to where it all came from. This is the land of music. We just took it and, like, I don't know, turned it up to 11, something like that. <laughs> sold it back to them, absolutely. Um, yeah, so you quickly mentioned um, Savoy Brown there. You were with the band for, for four albums or so, weren't you? Yeah. And then you guys left and you decided to form Foghat. But it wasn't too easy in the beginning, was it? Because I heard you say once that the manager, uh, the former manager, was uh, putting a stop on you getting any sort of work in England, wasn't he? It made it difficult for you. Yeah, piece of shit. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've remained really good friends with Kim Simmons, mm -hmm. the guitar player over the years. Yeah, uh, when we decided to leave the band at the end of 1970, um, it was time for a change. And I, I, we, myself and Lonesome Dave, Tony Stevens got fired at the bass player. But Dave and I said, look, we'll stay on until, you know, you put your new band together. There's no problem. I always got on great with Kim. Um, he's a great guitar player, good friend as well. Uh, but his manager... The following morning, we had breakfast with him and said, you'll never work again in England. You'll never work again in the States, and I'll stop you at every... And it was like, it wasn't like he offered us our jobs back. It just said, you're never going to work again. So um, it was a little difficult for the first year or so, but um, Albert Grossman, who was the manager of Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul and Mary, Janis Joplin, the band... Yep. Uh, Todd Rundgren as well, I think, at the time, uh, was coming over to England with the band. And um, our manager at the time uh, knew him. Anyway, we invited him to come down and see us. We were playing in a, a club in North West, in Islington, near the home of my football team. There's only one team in London. Sorry about this. <laughs> they have a fine Scottish player in their team now, Kieran Turney. What a great player he is. Oh, I digress. Sorry. <laughs> Anyway, Albert Grossman comes to see us in this little club. It was in the afternoon. We just rented the club. Nobody there. And Albert Grossman's sitting out the front. He's sitting about 15 feet from us. And we start playing. We turn the high watts and the marshals up to uh, mm. nine and a bit. And uh, uh, he visibly went. <laughs> um, so after about five or six songs, uh, he said, well, uh, is there anywhere we can go for some tea and biscuits? And I was familiar with the area. I said, yeah, there's a hotel across the road. We can get some tea and biscuits there. So Albert Grossman waited till the tea and biscuits arrived. And he looked around the table and he said, well, hey, let's do it. <laughs> and that was it. About, about a month or so later, he sent me $10,000. We rented a studio in Wales, Rockfield in Wales. Oh, yeah. Started recording. Uh, we were the beginning of it was pretty useless on our first record. 
1972, is it? Yeah. Um, but uh, Dave Edmonds was in the studio um, working on his album at the time. And we would, he would take the night shift and we would have the day shift at the same studio. And we would listen to some of his stuff and he would listen to some of ours. And uh, our mixing um, abilities left something to be desired. I mean, we're musicians. <laughs> what do we know, right? One, two, three, four. Um, Dave Edmonds' stuff was sounding fantastic. I've always been a fan of his anyway. So uh, our manager asked him, and said, would you mind producing our record? And he said, yeah, let me just finish my record. So Dave Edmonds... Uh, joined us about halfway through, put some of his magic dust on the record. The man is brilliant. He's an incredible uh, uh, musician, engineer, producer, lovely man too. And um, he, I think without Dave Edmonds' input in our first album, I don't think we would have been anywhere near as successful as we have been, over, certainly over in the States. But as we touched on earlier, we weren't allowed to play in England. So, uh, or Actually, we did a couple of dates in Scotland, okay. two, I think, right at the very beginning, 1972, before we went around anywhere. I don't think we even had a name for the band, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, you, you touched on Dave Edmonds there. I mean, you, you once said he took you from an average sounding band to something special. I mean, did you obviously you obviously learned an awful lot from him being in the studio and seeing him mixing and seeing him, him sprinkle his magic, as you said. I mean, did that help you going forward? Yeah. Uh, well, um, um, off the first album, I just want to make love to you. You know, Willie Dixon's song, you know, recorded by Muddy Waters was our first hit over in the States. It made a little bit of noise in England. We actually did uh, a three-week tour with Captain Beefheart in England. It was um, that the only reason we got that date is because um, those dates, because again, our ex-manager was trying to stop us from playing. But Derek Taylor, who is who was the Beatles publicist, heard some of our demos. He was working at Warner Brothers at the time, which was the parent company of Bearsville Records, the label we were on. And uh, he really liked the band, and um, he hooked us up with uh, a couple of a couple of shows uh, around London. I think we did a, did one up in Glasgow, and then we did a tour with Captain Beefheart. That was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine it was. <laughs> it was. We had we had a great time. Um, played the Royal Albert Hall, and we did. It was about three weeks, and then then we're out of work again. Um, <clears throat> And again, we were, str we were struggling to find a few dates um, in England. And then our manager called from the States and said, uh, the first album has charted and uh, the single, I just want to make love to, was getting played on the radio. So we came here. I think our first tour was 13 months. My daughter had only just been born. So when I got back, she was walking, said, wow. Who's that strange man in your bed, mummy? <laughs> uh, that this one's your daddy. <laughs> a life of a musician on the road, eh? Absolutely. Um, you mentioned your version there of uh, "I just want to make love to you." I mean, obviously, you're influenced heavily by some of these incredible artists that you've spoken about and you've mentioned, and you've, you've been fortunate enough to play with as well, didn't you, in later years and stuff? But um, in terms of that song on its own, on itself, then. Did you pick that one because it was a song that you guys loved playing? Was it something you just loved listening to? I mean, why that song in particular? Um, well, we actually, we, uh, some people thought maybe we ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> Muddy's version is, it was like the quintessential version of it. The Stones obviously did a version and a few other people. 
But um, I think he had, again, I think it goes back to our first album, Dave Edmonds mixing and producing it. I mean, he had like, he, he, he turned the song from like, you know, a bunch of English rockers making some noise, I think, into a classic sound in rock and roll tune, which, you know, rock and roll, you know, comes from the blues without Chuck Berry, Muddy Waters, uh, Willie Dixon. There will be no rock and roll without artists like that. Uh, well, no Rolling Stones without Chuck, would there? Yep. That would be that would be a sin. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and just quickly as well, um, you mentioned that you toured before you had a name. I mean, the name itself, Foghat. Where, where did that come from? Dave, Lonesome Dave, our original lead singer, um, was playing a Scrabble game type of game with his uh, brother John, uh, and um, when they were about thirteen or fourteen, I think teenagers, and uh, Dave made up the word. He used to do things like that. He used to make up words. <laughs> What's that, Dave? Uh, it's a new word. Anyway, he made up the word and sibling rivalries as they are. Uh, Dave, eventually it meant something. It means us. It doesn't really mean anything particular, though some have suggested otherwise. It does sound good. It does sound good. Now, in terms of um, the success you had in America then, because, as you said, you, you went over to the States and you stayed there and you had some huge success in North America and yeah. in the US and Canada and, and even Australia as well, but it didn't really touch over here. I mean, why was that you didn't come back to, to, to the UK and try and break it here? Um, we came back once. We did a show uh, at, um, in London that was filmed by Warner Brothers for a special on all their artists that were touring. There was us. Little Feet and um, I think the Doobie Brothers, actually two of my favourite bands. Um, it was, I think, then what happened was our manager at the time, uh, who was rather arrogant anyway, he used to be a friend of mine, <laughs> but um, he just didn't want to go anywhere else. And we were doing so well in the States. In fact, myself and Dave, I remember having a meeting with him saying, Look, why don't we go to Europe and like, you know, uh, and play there. And I think his main thing was that we were sort of so successful here. He didn't want to sort of leave, um, which is a shame because, you know, I'm still, I'm still around. And um, though this is my adopted home, uh, I would love to have done more shows in uh, Europe. We played uh, the Sweden rock festival a couple of times and that, that was really cool. Uh, the Swedes are so well organized. Uh, it's unbelievable. <laughs> You know, they have half a dozen different drivers and they all seem to know what they're doing. The stages are always set great. All the equipment works. Um, maybe the, <laughs> the Swedes should be in charge of everything, I think. Uh, lovely people. Lovely people. <laughs> There's a lot we can learn. There's a lot we can learn, absolutely. Um, you're talking about the success in America then. I mean, what was it, eight gold albums, a platinum album, a double platinum album? Um, it was just phenomenal, the success you had over there. The, the big one, that the, well, your first one that went platinum was Fall for the City. We'd like to touch on that one from 1975. And we've got to talk about the, the big single that came off that album as well here on Vintage Rock Pod, Classic Rock Stories. We'd like to hear about these big hits and things like that now. Um, some people I speak to tell me that the big hits, they, they knew it was going to be a hit from the second they wrote it. Some people tell me it was an album filler they didn't expect it to go as big as it did so slow ride i mean the first time you heard it played it recorded it what was your feelings about the song yeah it was uh the first time we recorded it rod price and i who was our lead and side guitar player at the time owned a house down here on long island and we'd had we, we were like the old couple um we'd <laughs> uh, we'd soundproof the basement and nick 
Jameson had just joined the band on bass. And the first song we started, we started, a lot of our songs came from just jamming, you know, I'd just start playing and everybody join in or vice versa. And um, basically, So Ride comes from a, it's a John Lee Hooker riff. Instead of playing it like a shuffle, it's played like in a straight 4-4. Four, four. Yeah. You know, uh, instead of like a shuffle. So um, we actually did the whole arrangement to the song, you know, like the drum and bass breakdown in the middle. And, up, and after we've been doing this, Dave said, uh, I think I've got some words that will fit to that. And that's how it happened. Nick Jamison and I were finishing mixing the Fall for the City album. Nick did all the mixing. I'd, I'd bring in tea and biscuits. Uh, <laughs> and we finished mixing it, and the B, and the B side was uh, Save Your Loving. That was off the same album. And uh, we took it back down to uh, Bearsville Records and played it for the – uh, head honcho there, Paul Fishkin, and he said, because it was Nick and I decided it was a single. Going back to what you asked, there was yeah. actually it was the first time that I ever thought of, of a single. And Paul said, "Well, that can't be a single. It's nearly eight minutes long." We said to you, uh, <laughs> not to you, to Paul, and he said, "Well, you, you can't put a seven-minute song out." And we said, "Yes, we can. We can do whatever we want." <laughs> so. <laughs> It did go out initially as a seven-minute song, but then reality struck home, and they and the record the radio stations were editing it themselves. So we figured it'd be better if we just got Nick Jameson to edit it, and he brought it down to about four minutes. But uh, yeah, that was um, John Lee Hooker riff. Yeah, it was a big hit for us. An incredible longevity behind it as well because it's stuck around forever and it's got so many different generations that know it from different things. I mean, I've got an eight-year-old son who, who he's got his own little Spotify account and he's always listening to all these weird and random things. He had um, he hooks up to the car while we're driving. He had a traffic song on. I'm thinking, that's 60s. Where's he got this from? And then Slow Ride came on and he sat there humming away to it. And I'm thinking, where was it eight-year-old? It's just incredible. That song just seems to well, I, bridge all the generations. You know, I think, um, you know, the late 60s, maybe I'm biased because that was like you know when I really started you know doing learning my craft learning my trade like you know doing it it was uh, it was a great time to be involved in music um maybe we're biased but uh it was I mean there were some incredible bands that were coming out as you mentioned Traffic one of my favorite bands Stevie Winwood uh, I mean uh, and Spencer uh, it was like um yeah, it was it was a great time to sort of be into music. There was a lot of great bands going around, and uh, I was glad I was born when I was born. You know what I'm saying? Because um, it was a great time to be in, involved in music. Actually, there was always music in our house. My uh, mum and dad came from the East End of London. That's where they grew up. So yeah. there was always music there. Dad played piano and sang. He used to sing in some of the local pubs and stuff. And also when he was growing up, apparently he was in a band, which I didn't know about. Um, and uh, there was always music in the house. In fact, Dad was the one who introduced us to Jerry Lee Lewis. I think I was 11 or 12 years old. And I would ride my bike home from school. I was living in southwest London, Halside. And uh, Dad was working at um, – he was a panel fitter at Aston Martins at their old place in Felton. And I would come home and there would be these exotic, you know, Kingfisher blue, red and British racing green cars parked outside because he had to road test them. And one day he brought home a single 
a Jerry Lee Lewis. I can't remember which one it was. I remember the B-side, which was uh, Mean Woman Blues. And he said, yeah, have a listen to this boy, son. He can really play the Joanna. And uh, about three months later, he took me to see Jerry Lee Lewis. And as my mother was uh, wont to say, it addled his brain. He was never the same after that. <laughs> no, I, uh, I was one of those fortunate few that had really cool parents. Uh, Dad never beat us. Just, he just had to raise his voice and we would go, <laughs> which was good. Uh, yeah, um, I was very fortunate where I grew up. And also I had friends that were playing in bands since they were like, 10 or 11 years old and that was the first jet band i joined so uh yeah life is good absolutely and you're talking about london and, and times like that i mean i spoke to kenny jones and simon kirk and they all talk about that sort of stuff as well and the drummers union and what it was like back then in the 60s playing the drums and kind of coming yeah. from that scene i mean like you said best time to grow up <laughs> it was I, I i used to uh i used to go to the marquee thursday nights to, to see uh uh it was uh, well, the Stones would play there, the Yardbirds, of course. Um, yeah, wow. uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was a great time. Uh, actually, I remember one time Mick spilled a beer on me, <laughs> <laughs> a brush with greatness. Um, Eel Pie Island, and uh, uh, he turned around and bumped into me and spilled his beer on me. And he said, Oh, sorry, mate. I said, That's okay. <laughs> Since it was you, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And just, actually, actually, I, I love the Stones; they're a great band. Absolutely, absolutely fantastic. Um, and just one last little story. Um, the, Jimi Hendrix, you, you tried out for the, well, you auditioned for the band, didn't you? Yeah. Can you tell us about that. I didn't get the job. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> uh, the right drummer got the job. I can say that though. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, his manager, who was a bass player with um, the Animals, um, I played in a band when I was 18 that uh, he'd uh, put together. We didn't go out and play anywhere, but he had my phone number. I was a commercial artist in London at the time. Uh, that's how I earned my living. I was pretty good at it, too. Uh, but um, he called me up and said, have you heard of Jimi Hendrix? And, and everybody was talking about, you know, uh, uh, Mick, you know, Mick was talking about him. Uh, Eric Clapton was talking about him. Uh, uh, it was everybody was it was in all the newspapers. Yeah. So I said, yeah, did you want to try out for the drum? And I said, yeah, borrowed my dad's car, took it up to London. That was when you could. Um, my brother helped my older brother helped me with um, getting the drums down. So actually we were, we were standing outside. Of course, it's raining down there. <laughs> it doesn't it always. <laughs> Uh, and um, we were playing at a, it was a lunchtime, it was a club called um, Birdland, just off Piccadilly Circus, and Jimmy came up to a couple of people in line, he came up to me and started talking to me about some of the songs he'd written the night before, and uh, really cool guy, I, I eventually got up to play with him, and he started playing, he had a Marshall stack, and he started playing, I really couldn't quite come to terms with his music to start off with <laughs> um then he uh, he played uh, to the best of my recollection he played he played like a slow blues and then i could i could do that i could do that uh and he played a, a chuck berry song i could do that um then i think he played a few other things and 
he was very generous with his time. I probably played for about 40 minutes, I think. But um, the drummer he picked was the one. Mitch Mitchell was mm -hmm. uh, incredible in that band. Um, he played some brilliant stuff. He played some stuff, and I'm going... I remember listening to the album when it first came out myself and uh, my friend Dave, who was a bass player in the first band I was in, we'd sit and listen to Jimmy's first album. I go, did you hear what you just did then? And Dave would say, yeah, what was that? I said, I don't know. I was talking about the drummer. He said, well, I was talking about the, oh, it was, um, no, Jimmy was, um, he was, uh, you know, I think in a world of like we're in, when so many people, there's so many great guitar players out there to stand out from, you know, the the crowded room that it is. Yeah, Jimmy was uh, totally unique. I've seen a number of some of his early uh, stuff. I'm also friends with probably what might be construed as his mentor, Buddy Guy. There's Buddy. There he is. There he is. I carry a picture of him in my uh, wallet. Uh Beautiful man. Um, I, actually, I, that's a picture from I presented uh, at the Memphis Blues Awards um, about four or five years ago. I was a presenter and Buddy won everything that night except piano. <laughs> I don't know if he plays piano. If he does play piano, he probably won that award too. He, he got four or five, I think. <laughs> anyway, I digress. An incredible experience, an absolutely incredible experience. Uh, speaking of incredible experiences, 50 years of Foghat. I mean, you guys are still on the go. You're, you're 75 now. I mean, you've spoken very warmly, obviously, about your, your good friend, Lonesome Dave, who passed away in 2000, and, yeah. and various other right. Rod as well, and Craig is sadly not with us anymore. But you've kept the band going. Foghat are still touring. The, you've got dates across the States, haven't you, right now? I mean, how good is it to be out in front of real people again? You can't even begin to imagine how happy I am about that. Yep. We wanted to wait until, obviously, I've been backed and um, all the band has and the crew. Um, I just wanted, I was concerned more about our fans because they're, uh, they're a pretty rabid bunch. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, they come to a Foghat show and they have a good time. They don't sit there and go, no, none of that. Uh, they're, having, they're, they're, they're up on their feet. Um, it is good to be out playing again. I wear my mask. You know, the people who don't think masks, are, they are a drag, that's for sure. You know, breathing your own. Uh, makes me clean my teeth on a regular <laughs> basis. So. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's been weird. Actually, I, I don't remember having a year and a half off probably since I was 12 or 13. And even then I used to work on, during the week and weekends. But... <laughs> I had a year and a half off. I went fishing, hung out with the wife, you know, mowed the lawn, fixed a bunch of stuff around the house. It, actually, I actually enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. um, it was, uh, but, you know, I didn't, we, the band, we, we'd called it, we'd talk to each other maybe once a month or so. With the, uh, the rest of the guys all live in Florida, where our studio is. I live in Long Island, New York. And it was, and when we did eventually see each other, which was, what, a couple of months back, uh, before our first show, we had uh, five days. We had a week of rehearsals. Um, that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it was, um, uh, uh, you know, no, actually, it was, it was it was really cool when we saw each other. You know, there was a lot of hugging, and then uh, after we 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 played for about three hours or so, then we sat down and drank some wine, had a few beers, and a few other things, and. Uh, 
everything was good from there on out. Um, yeah, I miss I, I miss playing. I still get chills when we go out when we walk out on stage. You know, um, before we actually walk out, then they have some music going on, and and it's I still get chills. It's like I'm I'm in fact I'm grateful when the first song starts and I can like you know get into what I do. But um, yeah, I'm one of those fortunate few in this world who gets to earn a decent living at something I love doing. Um, the immortal words of Lonesome Dave, I'm going to roll till I'm old and rock till I drop. Um, oh, I don't feel very well. <laughs> and hopefully that's no time soon, absolutely. And just talking about um, live stuff, I mean, you recorded a live album recently, didn't you? It's it's out now. It's called Eight Days on the Road. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? That lovely thing you've got in yeah, your hand right yeah. there. That's it. Uh, and more importantly, you get it's a double, double CD uh, double CD, an hour and 40 minutes of music, um, and a DVD. Yeah, it was recorded at uh, Daryl's House Club, upstate New York. We don't normally get a chance to play in small rooms. It, only held, it was a really cool club. It's all wood. Uh, I love to eat. The food was fantastic there. If anybody ever gets to go, Daryl's House Club in Pauling, New York, just order anything off the menu. It's great. Um <laughs> Uh, we got the, the 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 engineer, I think, who was uh, recording us. I think he used to work with Daryl. Probably did his monitors or front of house. Um, had a five camera high def shoot. We'd also uh, that week we had a sprinter van. Uh, if the if the mileage is like three hundred miles or less, we drive. Otherwise, ninety nine percent of our shows we fly to everywhere. Um, but we had a sprinter van, so we, we did three sh- three or four shows in a row. That was the last one, so we were kind of tired. But I think the band actually plays better when they're a little bit tired because you have to concentrate. Hmm. <laughs> Concentrating <laughs> on music. <What> is that? <laughs> uh, um, it was, I was really pleased with the way it, it – the sound is fantastic. Um, the people who worked there uh, were just really, really cool, but real professionals. Um Brian Bassett, our lead and slide guitar player, actually played in um, Wild Cherry, which was play that funky music, yeah. white boy. He he was a guitar player in that band. Actually, we did that on the record. Um, we used to play it at sound checks, and I said, "Why don't we play it as an encore or something?" Everybody <laughs> seems to like it, <laughs> so uh, we did that. We did a uh, we did one of the songs off of our first album. We did uh, Chuck Berry's Maybelline. That's really, really quick as well. It's really fast. <laughs> um, like, uh, sounds like a punk band. Yeah, right. 75 year old punk. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. And where can we get our hands on this then? Um, let's see. Where can you get this? Uh, go to Amazon. Go to who else can we go to, Linda? Foghat.com. Foghat.com. Um, yeah, fogcat.com is the best way you can find best it. Place. Uh, yeah. You can also buy our wine. Now, I don't think you can ship wine no. to Europe, can we? That's sad, actually. Usually That's when okay. I... when I, We've got a big <laughs> audience in the US and Canada. Don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, we have, we, have a, we have a wine brand that myself and uh, my girlfriend uh, do. That's a, That's a lot of fun, making wine. Um, this about 2005. We played two sold-out shows in on the West Coast, and uh, a winemaker called Steve Rasmussen came to see us, and he said, 
and he sent an email to our manager at the time and said, would you be interested in making wine? Because Falcat sounds like a good idea for wine. And I said, yes, please. <laughs> so we went out there and we took a tour of a whole bunch of vineyards in the central coast of uh, California and we started making wine and uh, a lot of fun, uh, a lot of work as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we actually pressed our 2010 Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. We made that ourselves, but usually we'll work with uh, our winemaker. Um, yeah, we're not making any money at it, but I have a huge wine cellar. <laughs> <laughs> and people can see that at foghat.com. That's the best place to get all that. Absolutely. Yeah, foghat.com. All, all things about the new album, um, eight days on the road. Um going to roll to a old rock till we drop and um yeah check it out i was really pleased with the way it sounded and it's our 50th anniversary it seemed like a good idea um uh, and like around 40 minutes what's not to like indeed what's not to like indeed so what what does the future hold for you well uh we've got about i think we've got about 30 shows booked for the rest of this year um we'll be doing that we're also working on a started working on a new studio album Oh, which, yeah, we were going to be in the UK next summer. What date? Uh, middle of July, around the middle of July, down in uh, in Kent. Is it Maidstone? Maidstone, Ramden Man. Uh, that would be cool. I'm, yeah, I'm looking. Well, it was supposed to have been last year, of course, and then this year they decided not to do it, which was probably wise. Um, yeah, Ramden Man Festival. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. As long as the good Lord doesn't decide to take me in between then. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Roger. I wish you all the best Thank for the future. It'd be great to catch up uh, Rambling Man next year when you come over. And, uh, yeah, everybody get on uh, the, the brilliant new live album, which is out now, eight days on the road. Uh, check out foghat.com and see what the band are up to. Thank you. Pleasure talking to you. There you go, the brilliant Roger Earl there. Definitely check out the Foghat website to follow what they're doing and to get your hands on the new live album. And if you're in North America and you're listening to this, see their range of Foghat wines as well. It's very, very cool, isn't it? Join the Foghat Cellars Wine Club now. There's Pinot, Chardonnay, autographed bottles, all that sort of stuff. It's all on there. So check it out at the Foghat website. Now, we're at the point of the show where I give you my song recommendations, my favourite five songs from the band of the guest on the show. Perhaps something to help those not overly familiar with the band have a place to start discovering them too. Now, if you want to hear a full list of all my recommendations from the previous episodes, then check out Spotify. There's a playlist that's been created by a listener, Paul Graham. Hi, Paul. Thank you. Who updates it every week with all the songs from the bands that I've featured. So definitely give it a listen and follow on Spotify. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod Top Fives. So with that said, here's my favourite five songs from Foghat, according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is the opening track on their real breakthrough album in 1975. In fact, it's the title track itself. It became the opener for most of their live shows for many years too. It's an upbeat number about a rocker moving from the countryside to the city. And number five is Full for the City. Number four is a track that doesn't get mentioned much, but it's another rousing album opening belter. I've always loved the way the song opens. It's big and ballsy. It's from the 1974 album Rock and Roll Outlaws. And number four is Eight Days on the Road. And number three is the title track of their sixth studio album. I love the pounding nature of the track with some great guitar work going on too. And number three for me is Night Shift. 
There seems to be a theme so far. My number two is another album opener, this time from the Night Shift album in 1976. The dueling lead guitars bring killer riffs and solos. There's a killer beat and, of course, killer vocals too. At two is Driving Wheel. And at number one is the big one. It had to be, really, didn't it? Still played on rock stations today. It's one of those classic rock anthems and was the one that broke the band into the stratosphere. The number one Foghat song, according to the Vintage Rock Pod, is the classic Slow Ride. There you go, my favourite five songs from Foghat. As ever, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this list. Whether you agree or disagree, drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com, or you can message me on the socials. Just give me a search, Vintage Rock Pod. Look for us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube as well. Give us a follow or a like on those pages and keep up to date with us. Also, keeping up to date with us, you can sign up to become a VRP VIP as well. You'll receive a newsletter which will land in your inbox at the very, very moment Post once a week. It's full of info about the episodes before they get released. There's extra bits and bobs on there from the world of Vintage Rock Pod. So just go to my website, vintagerockpod.com, vintagerockpod.com, and sign up using the form on the first page there. I promise your information will not be sold or passed on to anybody else. You're not going to get spammed. And as I said, at the very most, you'll get one email a week from me. Well, that's it for this week's show then. Apologies again for the longer than expected delay between episodes, but I've got a few guests lined up and shows ready to go. So until the next episode, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.